Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I just want to give a quick thanks to the Tier 5 channel members and patrons. Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Sergeant Puma, Cat Crab Lobster, and Duck Machine. Thank you very much for the support. It is much appreciated. Chapter 356 You're fine with using the new 40mm template, ma'am, Wookston asked. The Division CO nodded, sweat on her face. When a thousand-year-old NCO who worked under ordnance longer than you've been alive gives you a new template and tells you it solves your problem, you use it, she said. If it doesn't work, you can just hot-swap templates back. The dank under her hand roared, the heavy-duty fans keeping the plenum chambers pressurized enough to keep the tank at a good foot off the ground and moving forward at a steady rate. All right, ma'am, Buxton said. Out. The CO nodded and her face vanished from the little window. Vol 71, how's it looking? Buxton asked. Good, good, little green mantid said from his compartment between the shoulders of the armor. Can't believe not to think of ammo. Yeah. Everyone concentrated on the launcher, Buxton said. There was a pause for a second, even though Buxton could see that his combo system was engaged. Everything okay, buddy? Buxton asked. Looking at precursor clankers, Fall 71 said. We have problems. Buxton tabbed up stem gum and started chewing on it. You don't say. Follow pictures, we'll go slow, Fall 71 said. All right. Buxton slapped his hand on the copula and made his visor opaque. The picture of the gigantic crawler appeared. Here's Miner. Then a picture on the planet's crust of depth and heat and pressure. Goes here. A dot down at 70,000 feet below the surface. What came next was a formula. This hurt tank gun. A picture of a plasma cannon popped up, with formula rapidly appearing. Um, Paul 71, you have completely lost me, buddy, Buxton said. A meme popped up on the division. Then the core, then the army, then the theater social media channel of a little green mantid showing a talk in a chart full of numbers and formulas, with the talcum going, um, Q? And the next picture of a dozen green mantids face palming. The greenies thought it was hilarious. It took someone to search the data net to find out that the formulas were nothing more than respiration rates, rates of a talcum walking, and toothpaste pressure on stim gun, aka walking and chewing gum at the same time. Then, everyone else found it funny. Mine equals pressure plus heat, 471 said. More deep, more pressure, more heat. Right, Buxton said. A picture of the precursor machines popped up again. Mysterioleum alloy armor heat times pressure. Okay, so they've got armor that handles heat and pressure, Buxton said. 471 wanted to bang his head against the inside of the housing. Plasma cannon, Paul 71 flashed. Oh, uh, Buxton said, oh! He clicked channels till the CO popped open. What, Lieutenant? The Terran captain asked. Ma'am, the precursor machines are deep cross miners. That means high heat and pressure, Buxton said. My greenie ran the computations. And, she asked, the armor is made to withstand high heat and pressure, more than a point-blank shot from one of the plasma cannons, Buxton said. Not only can the great herd guns not hurt them, but something called a uh, Mysteronium gets tougher. 
Mr. Onion is what a greedy uses to hand-wave away complex armor, laminate, or alloy. Is he sure of his findings? She asked. You want to ask Greenie if he's got his maths right? Wixton asked. She chuckled. Point. I'll talk to the great most high yellow armoru and let you know, she said. Sir, communication from the commander of the first Tarka Marines, most high armoru's communication specialist said. Put her through to my visor, a armoru said, looking around the tank. He was half out of the tank, like he'd seen the human commander do. He had to admit, he liked the visibility it gave him. It gave him the feel of power for the tank, let him look at the tanks around him. Yes, he had one graviton booster smoking heavily, but for some reason it did not cause him anxiety to see boring blackish-blue smoke like seeing the icon of it being damaged did. Most high, the human said. Her face was sweaty and a armoru was glued to the tank commander and not a power armor suit. General, a armoru said. He liked the Terran ranks. They had such weight to them. You have a problem with the upcoming engagement, the Terran said. Oh, a armoru raised a fur tops at the top of his four eyes. Normally used to catch perspiration, it had taken him days to practice to emulate the effect and he found that he liked it. The precursor machines are deep cross mining machines, the general started. Which uh, means my plasma weapons, which depend on heat and limited kinetic energy, are useless, Ayamaru said. I recommend we break off, Most High, the human said. Ayamaru, he said. We must make haste. The threat is imminent. The human frowned and nodded. As you say, sir, my marines are with you. What munitions do your marines have loaded at this time? Ayamaru asked. She glanced up. Standard mass reactive armor defeating rounds. The heavy gunners have antimatter rounds loaded up. Ayamaru thought quickly. Heat and pressure would increase the vehicle's armor and toughness. He thought real quick, pinged his implants, then nodded to himself. Can your men fab up liquid nitrogen rounds for your weapons? Perhaps have your heavy guns mix it at three to one ratio with your men's rockets and grenade weapons mixed it in, he asked. She glanced up again, spoke on mute, and then looked at Aomaru again. No problem, good plan. Thank you. Your marines will be critical to my planning. They have my utmost confidence, Aomaru said. Part of him knew that all as little as a month ago he would have never had faith in Neo-Sapien troops much less rebellious species that had left the Unified Council to join up with a pack of murder machine lemurs. But when your business was death, murder machine lemurs and their allies were the best partners to have. The Terran signed off and a armorer who pinged his comma officer. Get me that one-eyed human that deals with munitions. There was a few seconds before a one-eyed Terran appeared in his vision. It was obvious to Aamaru that the Terran was running in his loading frame, easily keeping up with the hover tanks. Casey here, the Terran snapped. Aamaru noted that his eye wasn't glowing red. I am the great most high of armor, Aamaru, he said. Sergeant First Class Casey, 144th Ordnance Company, 15th Combat Sustainment Battalion, the human stated. What can I do for you? Plasma rounds are problematic for the upcoming battle. The enemy armor gets stronger when exposed to heat and pressure and undoubtedly has high-temperature superconductor properties, Aamaru said. You have the specifics of our main guns, as you have been providing our ammunition needs. Yes, the Terran answered. 
I need you to devise what kind of munitions that we could field without modifications to our weapons. We have only minutes and not many of those, a armorer said. I'm gonna have to mount the back of the deck on one of your tanks, the Terran said. I'm in a heavy frame. A armorer checked at the back of his tank and motioned for the three Talcum Marines to jump to one of the other tanks. My rear deck is clear. Why, most I, I hardly know you, the Terran grinned then cut the channel. A armru did a search, then burst out laughing. He was most disrespectful, most high. A armru's gonna said, then you should not make sexual comments towards one of your rank. Perhaps you would like to first fight him over my honor, a armru asked. I never knew you had such feelings for I, such your superior. I'll swoon with delight to watch you duel the Terran over my virtue. The gunner ducked his head, embarrassed. Quickly, navigator, set a course to the Most High's fainting couch. The driver laughed. I will set my instruments to search for the Most High's virtue. Surely I can find it, the gunner said, trying to get in on it. It's surely next to the box marked grid squares and military intelligence. A armorer laughed, glad to see his men's morale raise. The tank actually bobbled when SFC Casey climbed on the tank. He didn't jump into the tank like the Terran did, just grabbed the back and pulled himself up. A armorer felt a bit nervous at the sight of Casey opened the maintenance data pouch and connected a cable, leaning down on the back of the deck. Pressure's too low for that, the Terran mumbled. Not enough laser propellant for that. Uh, can't have a mortar ovens made for that. The most high aim armorer let the Terran work. He had heard that the Terran was nearly a thousand years old and had spent the entire time in the Confederate military. Suddenly, Casey looked up. Your training rounds, compressed air to register impacts. I can use that. Your experience and skills are appreciated, Terran, Ayamaru said. The Terran grinned. I'm a jumped-up chimp that figured out how to throw a rock. I'm all about innovation. Ayamaru nodded. Casey touched his implant. Captain Starpunt, I've got templates I'm going to hand to you. Dump the current load out for the great herd in the grinders. Plasma rounds are a no-go at this station. He nodded. I'm sure, ma'am. I have a Dominguez and Chatterman start fabbing them up. We're going to have to get either set up on the ATP on this side of the river, or go in on their tails and drop back and reload patterns. It was silent for a moment. Roger that. Coming back. The Terran disconnected the cable, stood up, and gave a little hop that let the tank drive out from under him. Ayamaru shook his head. The fans howled as his unit made for the river at flank speed. He examined the drone feeds and the fast-scan drones that were searching for a place for the sustainment battalion to dig in so that they could fab up ammunition and repair tanks that needed maintenance frames. Most high, his calm clinked. It was the Terran. Here, he said. My unit is going to mount the tanks and cross the river with you. We'll be working on your tanks until you get within a K of engagement or get engaged. Then we'll drop off and start digging in, the Terran colonel said. There's civilians on the ground. We might need to go in with you. I cannot provide safety, Ayamaru said. Sir, it is war. There is no such thing, the Terran said. Ayamaru noted that her eyes were glowing a soft red. My men are trained in combat, Refit, the Terran said. That's why we wear armor. 
Ayamaru's implant pinked and he checked it, and then looked at the Terran. I must remind you that without your sons operational, should you or your soldiers be killed in action, you'll remain dead. There is no recovery. She nodded slow. Me no. She got the link and Ayamaru nodded to himself, staring at the wreckage going by. If I was effectively immortal and then lost it, would I risk entering battle, he thought to himself. I joined the Unified Military Forces at 30. I'd been a tank for centuries. I have spent the bulk of my 500 years of life risking that one life to lead this tank. He stared at the burnt-out ground car where he could see the bones of the owners fused in martyr plastic. Yes, yes I would. The same thing that urged me to leave behind a life of ease and comfort as a son of the fifth most high and learn to fight at a tank would urge me to do even so even if I was born a confederate lieber, he decided. We will be halting in 500 meters from the river for 10 minutes. This is the time your people have to work, a armoru told the CEO and the support unit. Roger that. We'll prioritize repairs on armor and battle screen replacement, drivetrain repair and IFF systems. Captain Starpun said the fabs are already running off your new ammunition. You'll need to run your guns in long-range training modes to use the munitions, but they should work, the colonel said. Ayamaru nodded. The system was designed to fire a slug of compressed air up to two miles that could flip over a ground car with a direct hit. The round just has to hit. Don't worry about penetration. We'll be loading your mortar tubes with hydrogen slush rounds with the kicker, the colonel added. Fifteenth out. Ayamaru nodded, marking the area to come to a halt. It would keep a huge cargo ship loading and unloading area between his troops and the fighting going on only a few miles beyond. The tanks were on war speed, hover fans and graviton systems howling. Buxton jumped onto the back of the most highest tank, the heavy magax stubber in his hands. Part of him felt that he should be wielding the same weapon as every other Tolkien in his division. But despite his misgivings, he'd been more or less ordered to keep carrying the weapon that he'd been gifted with just prior to his desperate fight under the mountain that had become the Wrathforge of Tolkien. He glanced at the spread-winged eagle on the side of the heavy gun, done and still burning war steel, and closed his eyes. He could feel it. It was going to get thick. Colonel Dremsel saw the medics of the 13th EVAC hurrying beings onto the heavy combat shuttles in the review of his visor, concentrating on hammering at the precursor vehicles with his quad barrel. They were using the wreckage of the first ball drill systems as cover as they advanced. The rest pulled back. His self-propelled artillery pieces were firing ground-penetrating rounds, rowing up plumes of dirt hundreds meters high, all with the bright whitish-blue snap of an antimatter at foot. How long? he asked. One of his tanks took a heavy hit, ringing it like a bell. But the spalling liner held and the tank stayed in the fight, even with six-inch deep crater on the side of the copula. Ten minutes, one of the SAR replied. Dropship six suffered a turbine failure due to the enemy fire. Roger that. We'll hold the line, he answered. Thunderpunch was putting out their namesake, even restricted with the ammunition that they could use. Normally, they'd have gone full-blown atomic, but the refugees behind them, whose makeshift shelters had failed, would die from the hellish particle sleet if he ordered that, which wouldn't do anyone any good. A mining laser ripped through the battle screen of Tank 3-8, the TC, 
one Major Grummond vanished from his waist up in a spray of reddish steam and scraps of boiled flesh as the energy transfer from the high-powered laser converted the water in his body to steam. Those big ones, they were tougher than they had any right to be. They were staying back, hiding and putting out their mining drones with heavy lasers. The ones that had tried to get close enough to use their impact tools had been reduced to junk. But they were still flying. Worse, there was movement from the ground at Jotun only a few miles away. But the smoke, debris and radiation in the air prevented anyone from getting a good look at what was coming. A laser managed to get through the screen, ripping across Wang Wan's armor, leaving a deep glowing gouge in the wall steel hull, and stopped just before it would have snapped Colonel Dremsel in half. Dremsel answered with his quad barrel, shattering the metal attackers with the actinic flash and antimatter liberating its energy. Come on, Thunderpunch, only a few more minutes, he thought. But in combat, ten minutes was an eternity. End of chapter. Chapter 357 Talcon 2, one week after the battle for Hessler. Brentler looked at the document and sighed. Private Kalberg, in defiance of personal danger and extensive physical injury, used his physical therapy frame and, with the help of two green-mantid engineers, held the precursor autonomous war machines at the south gate at Striker Base Boop to enable the medical evacuation of over 200 military and civilian wounded. Despite grave injuries, Private Kalbeck fought, often alone with the exception of the Mantids 222 and 640, for nearly two hours. At the end, according to the records recovered on site, Private Kalbeck, with the remainder of his ad hoc fire team, defended the landing pad against overwhelming odds. Once the last patient was evacuated, Private Kalbeck and his team of wounded human compatriots, despite mortal injury, continued to draw enemy fire until finally he was struck by a 52mm high-velocity burst and killed. For his valor in the face of overwhelming personal danger, as well as his persistence despite mortal injury, the Telkin Marine Corps has determined that Private Kalbeck's actions have held the highest traditions and expectations of the Telkin Marine Corps, the Confederacy Military Service, and the Telkin people. It is with solemn regret that I record this. Signed, Admiral Nguak, Space Force, Task Force Commander, Hessler. Another one. Hessler had been a disaster as far as she was concerned. Out of the 15,000 troops, nearly 2,000 had been killed. She had to admit, not as dramatic and heroically as this one. Many of them killed during deployment when the task force dropped into an ambush. But still... Too many for her liking. The fact that nearly one-third of the deaths were listed as temporal warfare casualty, and some of them had apparently served aboard Space Force vessels for over 60 years before expiring of old age, just made the entire thing stranger. Brentlick had spoken to Colonel Harvey, who had told her that the casualties were severe, but not unexpected for an unblooded unit facing their first deployment under fire in a surprise ambush. She looked at the list of the next of kin for Private Kalvik and nearly cried. Two brood carriers and four podlings nearly two years old. He had stepmother and a stepfather, as well as a step-siblings. But according to the records, his mother, father, and siblings had all been killed during the First Talcon War. 
He had been old enough to join the first-class Talc Marines by exactly 42 minutes when he had taken the oath. Added was a recorded message from his next of kin. Brentelik didn't want to, but she listened. When Mom and Dad died, when my siblings died, you made me feel like someone still loved me. I love you all, and I'm sorry I can't make it home. Bodlings, take care of your brood mummies, and I love you. Played at the end. Brentlick dried her tears and authorized the recording for release. Poor kid, Brentlick thought. Not even a body to recover. She stabbed the file and printed and sent it out and moved on to the next one. Citizenship is a heavy duty, she thought to herself. Nestler system, time date error in progress. Specialist grade 4 Thom Dominant had his graves registration for several decades. The promotion point score was a tough one, but there was a high enough turnover that a being could gain rank somewhat frequently. He'd made sergeant several times, but sooner or later he'd get drunk and get in a fight and find himself back of the military police car about to lose sub-rank. Still, he was Graves registration, and allowances were made. He had to admit, this had been a rough deployment. Nagging headaches were the least of it. It was all the locals, the civvies, coming in missing the tops of their heads and their brains that had really made it tough. The most common cause of death was cerebral extraction amongst the civilians. Then to top it off, with everyone's suds going on the fritz, he found himself checking off clinically deceased, less and less, and prematurely deceased instead. He would eject the suds' memory cartridge and pack it up. Over more and more, as time went on, the cartridge had error telltales blinking. It was late. He switched shifts to handle night casualties after working day shift for quite some time. The morgue was dim and cool, not to mention quiet like he liked it. The clankers and their masters had been pushed back, giving the Terrans time to breathe and regroup, which meant that the casualties had come in thick and heavy for the last two days, leaving the morgue full of bodies. SP4 Dunmet had finished the last autopsy, reading the corpse into the refrigeration unit, and had moved over to start on the paperwork. He moved over to his desk and started downloading his notes from his datapad to his console, making sure that the files were loaded onto the correct casualties. The lights flickered and Dunman looked up, switching to a different screen. The door slid open and black mist rolled in, pouring out of the doorway. Dunman moved his thumb over the icon that would summon base security. Robe figures moved in and Dunman heaved a sigh of relief. Religious personnel... Probably from the chaplain's office, he thought to himself. He went back to his paperwork, keeping an eye on the six robed figures. They were all obviously Talcum under the robes, shuffling forward. They had black robes that seemed to shine in the dim light, matte black masks over their faces rather than the normal Talcum tan and brown, and moved slowly in a single rank of four, with one to each side slowly swinging a thurible that left trails of incense smoke. They moved up to one of the drawer doors. The lead was opening it. They pulled out the drawer, revealing a covered corpse that was only half a normal length of a Talcan. When they pulled back the sheet, they revealed the ravaged body of a young male Talcan, missing below the bottom ribcage. The Talcan male's jaw was missing teeth. A cyber eye was crudely jammed into an empty socket. Wires led from the back of his skull, 
cut free a few inches from the exposed spinal column. Dunmet watched as they stood around the dead Talcon, one holding a heavy tome marked The Book of Talcon, close to his chest and black-gloved hands. This the one we want, one of them said, his voice low and serious. They all nodded. Dunmet was looking up when it happened. The three that were not carrying items touched the dead Talcon. There was an eruption of purplish-black smoke that then sucked back in on itself. The Dalkins, including the corpse, were gone. Dunmant hit the security icon. The scribe was blind. He'd been blind since the precursor machine had torn out his eyes and tongue and broadcast his agony over Galnet. His delicate fingers, sensitive beyond reason after the precursors had torn out his vestigial claws, traced over the long strip of bronze wall steel alloy. His tools were delicate but precise as he began slowly carving another rune, a rune that burned with white fire in his mind's eye. Each tap of the hammer against the engraver made his soul sing. Each curl of the dark bronze metal brought the joy of vengeance to his heart. The strip was nearly two feet long, a handspan wide, with a single column of runes engraved down the face of the inch-thick metal strip. As he finished the strip, it was passed to the worker next to him, who would inlay the graven ruins with molten metals that would never cool. Around them, the faint whispering could be heard. Soft puddling, warm puddling, brave puddling, strong one, and one is two, and two, and two is four. Red shape is square, blue shape is round, soft puddling, smart puddling, clever puddling, warm. None of the workers could hear the song as it was sung. They'd been made deaf by the cold steel claws of the precursors, but they heard it in the depths of their souls. Each of the robed figures had learned their lessons, taken by those who understood the secrets of the dark forbidden science to a place where they had all the time that they needed to understand the nature of life and death and the dark science in between. All of them looked as if they were wearing close-fitting armor that was somehow biological yet mechanical at the same time. A light, drinking black material that pulsed with life of its own. All of them had been burning eagle in the molten wall steel on their chests. Their eyes were burning chrome that leaked smoke as violet as the skies that they had stared out of eternal moments. Shuffling silent workers brought forth heavy pieces of equipment, each piece of equipment was put into its proper place, and slowly a form took shape. Heavy put pads with claw-like toes evenly spread, heavily armored legs, the thick armor concealing pistons, gears, drive belts, and struts, articulated hips to allow the legs to move and provide a stability to the torso portion. The torso was large, blocky, heavily armored. Gaps were in the armor, the weapons that would normally be mounted there missing. The arms were missing below the elbow, the implanted weaponry being built to the side by technicians who had devoted lifetimes to study exactly how to put a custom-built dual mechanism machinery together. It had no head, no reason to provide a small target. The torso was open, the main hatch opening to reveal the armor was a foot thick of wall steel laminate armor. Inside the armor were complex mechanisms with dark and terrible purpose, created and imagined by dark minds, unfettered by something as simple as morality. Finally, the mechanisms were prepared, 
the massive machine trembling slightly, not with the power of the reactor that drove its mighty heart, but with a terrible purpose. The rent and damaged body of the Talcon was brought forth. The wound below the ribcage where the rest of his body had been obliterated was sealed with a thick biomechanical tissue. The missing arm was sealed at the stump, covering his face with a heavy mask more akin to a skull than a living creature. It was bolted to the Talcon. The heavy war steel bolt sunk into the bowed structure. The chest rose and fell slowly as the mask inflated and contracted. On the bare flesh of the chest implanted metal gleamed and shined. Cybernetics, something largely unheard of for the Talcum people, invaded the body, giving purpose to the surrounding tissue. The body was lifted, kneeling Talcum reciting prayers from the Book of Talcum and placed in the open torso of the massive machine. Technicians, dark and terrible, moved in, connecting the quasi-corpse to the machine. Heavy probes swerved into the skull, the drill bit biting deep into the bone to bring forth a gush of blackish blood. The probes were sunk deep into the natural tissue, microscopic filaments squirming out of the probes to link up with the neural tissue. The one remaining eye opened at that point, the pupil contracting, and the quasi-corpse writhed for a half-second before going limp. The technician secured the damaged body into the massive machine. Sometimes, cruelly with heavy war steel bolts, other times with gentle webs of cloth woven from the shed downs of podlings, other times without emotion, using plasteel wraps. The body was protected from kinetic shock, radiation, sound, biological hazards. One by one, each threat of the modern battlefield was negated as best of the silent technicians could create. Once it was done, the empty internal spaces were packed with specifically woven cloth inscribed with runes, prayers, and symbols of faith and devotion. The inner lining was closed. Parchments inscribed with prayers were pasted on the metal alloy. More sharp dampening was added. The outside of the hull was closed. Two black armored foot-tall mantids were lifted up and placed gently into the twin housings on the upper rear of the torso, covered with padding and the shells closed. Computers nearly covered with strips of paper inscribed with prayers were to life. Ancient-style storage platters spun up with the scraping wine. Nano-relays and cyberware linkages clattered to life, clicking to themselves. The gathered Talcon, one of which still reading from the book of Talcon, watched as the great machine shuddered and shivered. The blackish bronze alloy square in the middle of the chest, just above the burning eagle, suddenly lit up with a gold light. A rune slowly inscribed itself in the alloy. Kappa. Arise, Kappa, and serve! The Talcon with the book cried out. There was a silence for a long moment. Beyond death, I still serve, buoyed by the laughter of bodlings. The massive machine intoned. In the wreckage of the city on a small planet, a puff of purple smoke erupted, billowing out to cover a large area before suddenly vanishing, sucking back into itself and disappearing with a purple flash. Standing in the wreckage was a massive war machine, one arm terminating in a powerful four-fingered clump with a plasma napalm ejector at the palm. 
the other arm, a heavy tri-barrel autogannon capable of tearing through the heaviest armor. Its chest contained mortars to provide indirect fire support. Battle screen projectors, better fit to ships of the line, were covered in runes. It stood still for a moment, the only sound, the wind making mournful noises as it moved over the heavy armor. Finally, it raised its thick antenna and broadcast a simple message. More bound, Kappa, online and awaiting instruction. Even beyond us, I serve. Akeltak, Soaring Worlds. I don't know about that. Are you sure you should do that? Nothing follows. Talcum Forge Worlds. What's wrong with it? Nothing follows. Tinvaru gripping hands. Where did you learn to do that kind of thing? Nothing follows. Talcum Forge Worlds. The Imperium of Wrath guys that Daxon leads. Nothing follows. Tinvaru gripping hands. Oh, okay. Nothing follows. Alkaltak, Soaring Worlds. I still don't know about this. I wish Terrasol and the others were here to talk about this. Nothing follows. Tinvuru New Worlds. So do I. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. Yeah. Really feels lonely without them. End of chapter. Chapter 358. Mind the goddamn frequency shift they're using. Staff Sergeant Stafford yelled over the comlink to his greenies. They keep getting split second through our screens. The nearby heavy mining robots were taking cover behind the mechanical corpses of their previous brethren and firing their heavy mining lasers at the tanks of Thunder Punch. Every full second or two worth of firepower managed to get a split second of the laser through the screens as the heavy duty lasers, used to mine deep rock in the crust, flickered through hundreds of thousands of wavelengths a second. A laser ripped into the side of 4-3, Stafford's tank, scarring the wall steel but not penetrating. The ablated battle steel in the section had already been torn away by the massive heat transfer of the laser weapon. Stafford replied with a half-second burst of the quad barrel, the heavy mass reactive armor defeating discarding Sabo antimatter core rounds, just listed his API in the upper right of his vision ripped huge divots into the cover a handful of mechs were using. One mech cartwheeled away, its upper torso shucked out like an oyster and the metal burning from the reaction to the antimatter. Working, 582 answered. Shifting algorithm complex, multiphasic atomic decay randomization core seed hash. Do your best, Stafford answered. Putting the gun around and raking a handful of mechs that had broken cover, and were rushing towards the next cover. The actinic white flash of the rounds hitting blue off chunks of the armor, reducing two to scrap and collapsed in a heap. Five made it to cover. The four green mantids inside the maintenance space of the tank clustered around the battle screen projection system, trying to determine how the precursor mining machines were managing to get through the frequency of the battle screen. It had to be tuned to allow visible light in some EM emissions on order to let the tank see and communicate. But the lasers were all amplified, nearly coherent light that should have been drained away or blocked by the battle screen. Yet every time a hundredth of a second kept getting through out of every second, which meant gigawatts of power getting through to the tank's armor. Additionally, roughly 16.5254% of the strikes that got through were on the correct frequency to affect the molecularly bonded battle steel ablative armor. Huge chunks were being blown off by the energy transfer, 
or deeply slagged, in many cases all the way down to the wall steel hull. 884 was running communications and the other greedy tech teams and the other tanks, trying to figure out what was going wrong. In Colonel Dremsel's tank, one Greeny 439 was coordinating with Call Support Command, trying to get the issue handled. If the vulnerability exploit spread to the other precursor vessels, there could be trouble. Colonel Dremsel was inside the tank, running the commander's gun through the automated system. The side of his helmet blistered and cracked from a brush with an expanding thermal bloom of one of the miners' beams. 13th in back, how much longer? He asked over the commo focusing his fire on a pair of mining machines moving forward on treads, using the massive razor-enhanced drill bit to cover the smaller machine moving with it. The shells from the TC's guns blew large chunks away from the drill bit, which kept rotating up more spiral teeth to take their place. How the feck are mining machines giving us this much trouble? The driver, Sergeant Eston, asked, holding onto the control bars of his own external gun. Because if we fire the main gun, the backlash will kill those people, BFC Zuckerman said, his hands holding onto the O-crap bar above his head instead of holding onto the gunnery station. He had his external gun on automatic, pivoting point defense. Loading up last, dropship Glorious Matt Duck is going to go to Warmech mode as soon as we crossload that last patient. Her starboard anti-grab is out, so she'll be walking with a limp. Old Vine Feathers answered, not breaking stride from where he was carrying a Lanikalan filly with a broken leg into a dropship. He had already injected painkillers, antibiotics, and sprayed a quickset cast onto the leg after applying a coagulant. The filly was laying her head on Iron Feathers' shoulder, sleepily blinking her two side eyes. Let me know when you got the button up. I need my main guns back, Demsel said. Since we left off, you're clear, Iron Feathers said handing the filly off and turning to move back out of the dropship. Our armor can handle the backlash. Demsel went to answer when his helmet switched channels on a priority. Demsel, you're still alive! Tracker's voice was tight, nearly blotted out by the roar of the main guns. Hanging tight, sir, Demsel said. You've got support coming, but that's beside the point, Tracker said. As soon as that dropship buttons up, I want you to scatter and scatter hard. Get at least half a mile between you and the shelter, Trucker said. You've got crazy seismic all over the place. I'm surprised you can't feel them. The howl rang and Dremsel shook his head. Just hang on, Trucker yelled. The great herd's charging to rescue. Go to local control. I'm wiping the fire plan in exactly 150 seconds from now. Make sure you update me via data link when you can. Roger that, sir, Dremsel said. The seconds counting down as moving oh so slowly. Black Betty, blow your black fire before it tears apart your running gear. Trucker yelled right before the data link dropped. Psycho-X, drop back. I can see you spilling slush from... Dremsel checked the 360 view again. They were still cross-loading patients from the smoking dropship. He wondered where the great herd was and more vehicles pushed their way through the shattered brethren and advanced on the static tank line. A armorer grabbed the round being handed to him and passed it down, breathing heavily. His arms hurt and his waist ached, but they didn't have much time to reload the ammo hopper in his tank. His communications technician passed up the plasma round and a armorer handed it to the Terran, 
who turned it and handed it to another one so that it would be tossed into the grinder to be reclaimed. There were four Terrans standing on the back deck of his tank, passing rounds, one on top of the copula. There were talcum-powered armor troops being handed rounds so that they could catch up to the vehicles and hand the rounds to the back deck. Reloading under movement was something so outside of a armorer's experience that a part of him giddily wondered if he'd been killed and didn't know it. It was unsafe, wasteful, and clumsy. But the time they'd spent traveling was being put to use. He could see the big four Terran power armor troops holding onto the side of his tank while the mechanics pulled their entire hover fan dry fan motor out, dropping it to the ground for someone else to toss into the grinder. Pipe tanks had been repaired in less than six minutes using such methods. The smooth, practiced, almost blasé way the Terrans did the refit and reloading on the move should have frightened a armorer. He knew he should be alarmed, should be scared. But all he cared about was getting much done as possible as he passed down another round, which felt cold even through his body's armored gauntlets. How long to the rubber? he asked his driver. Three minutes, the driver yelled back, grinding the wreckage of the burnt-out ground car under the fans of the hover tank. A armorer passed it on to the lieutenant colonel in charge of the combat sustainment battalion that was working to bring his unit up to the best fighting ship that they could. Six more rounds, Captain Starpunt, the commander of the 144th Ordnance, yelled out over the channel, hustling forward with another tank round. The round she was carrying was a hydrogen slush. SFC Casey ran by, carrying two six-pack pods of 155mm mortar rounds, one in each hand, his power assist loading frame hissing as he ran. Captain Starpunt felt the urge to trip the big one-eyed man, who was acting like it was nothing more than a spring day. Buxton heard the call that only six more rounds would be put out by the nanoforgers and nodded to nobody in particular, panting inside his armor. The tank rounds were massive, forged out with handles on the sides, and he could only carry one at a time due to the sheer bulkiness of the munitions. He reached the back of the tank and passed it up to the human on the back, who passed it up to the next human, who passed it on to the one on the copula. The one on the copula sprayed something on the bandles and knocked them off before handing the round to the Lanaclan half out the tank. The human on the back handed the plasma round to Vuxton, Buxton turned around and ran back to meet someone carrying another round forward, and someone waiting for the plasma round to run it out to the reclaimer. He was covered in sweat like he'd been in combat for the last ten minutes, instead of just running fast enough to keep up with the tanks, while firing the heavy-duty main gun rounds back and forth. Is that not dangerous, Pin asked, pointing at the icons that showed the Talcan marines and the troops of the 15th sustainment flowing back and forth between the self-propelled heavy nanoforgers and the tanks of the great herd. No drunk nodded, tapping a cigarette against his blade arm. It is. Why do you permit it then? Galopin asked. Does it not risk the troops that may be required for upcoming combat? General No Drunk noticed that the Lanaclan's tone had changed over the last ten minutes, and he turned slightly to look at the great herd officer. Two men have been injured, one badly enough that he'll need a medevac out. But in the last ten minutes, they've reloaded nearly half the munitions in two hundred tanks, Nodrak said. If they stopped, it would have taken three to four minutes. 
but that would mean that the tanks of the Great Herd would have been unmoving for that time, and that's movement that they'd never get back. And who's to say that the injured soldier wouldn't have been injured without the operation? General Palgret said. His knee server blew out and his leg folded the wrong way, shattering his knee and breaking the end of his humerus. It could have blown out while he was walking to the chow hall. Galloa Pin nodded slowly. Well, many feel the great herd cares not for casualties, and indeed many commanders do not. I have learned at the great grand most high armor's shadow that each soldier lost causes a loss of combat effectiveness that is far outstrips a single being's efforts. Nodrak nodded. Notice that the injured soldier transferred to sitting on the self-propelled nanoforge to run operations there and have maintained the system, bringing up the obligatory soldier to do the lifting and carrying. Galloa Pinna nodded, turning his attention back to the data. He pointed to the large, fused area. I dislike that we have no data on this area. Nodrak nodded. Once the Targa Marines cross the river, they plan on sending out Scout Company to check that. Geomo-O pointed at the data streams. Traka's data streams just jumped up to nearly triple the bandwidth. More analysis are logging in. Something's happening, Nodrak said softly, putting the cigarette between his mandibles. He could smell his own stress pheromones. What do you see that I don't, Traka? He asked, sharing the icon for HHC-113AD, which was amber and flashing to denote. I'm engaged in active combat. Trucker grunted as he was slammed against the edge of the hatch, his body armor taking a blow. The tank slid a few meters to the side. The battle screen intended almost to the hull of the tank, shooting sparks. The battle screen projectors howled, and something gave a loud metallic cring sound. But the screen howled. Trucker shook his head and looked starboard, the precursor vehicle was ripping up huge sections of debris from the fallen skyscraper, sucking it into the main part of the vehicle and launching it from what had been the rear section. It had been a chunk of hyperalloy slightly larger than his tank that had hit his shields. Several tank main gunshots hit the massive vehicle. Bubbles of white streaked with red erupting a split second before smoke and debris exploded from the impacts. Craters, several meters deep, glowered red for a second, then cooled. Kill that goddamn thing! Trucker yelled out as his own tank fired on the precursor vehicle, nearly five times the size of the tank, with spinning, grinding blades that were tearing up the Plascrete Road, sucking in the shattered houses and vehicles and spewing the debris out of the back. The shot hit the spinning blades, three of them shattering. The vehicles just rotated up replacements and kept advancing. Precursor combat vehicles, we can destroy like a tornado into a matchstick house, but these damn things... Trucker snarled, breaking a line of deep mining bots, shattering the first rank. Two kept struggling forward, deploying tracks from underneath them and grinding across the rubble. Trucker closed his eyes for a second, fitting it around him, checking his implant at the same time. It was going to be tight, but a armorer would make it just in time. Just not to the fight that he thought he was going to fight. A armorer stomped on the pedal, that command seat lowered, the hatch closing above him. The Terran on the copula jumped down on the back deck, crouching down next to the Talca Marines. 
The armorer who saw the highmost Garum shots tank bubble when Sergeant Casey jumped onto the tank. Grabbing onto it with one claw, the massive bloating frame the Terran was wearing hissing and venting steam. Ahead of him, the river moved sluggishly. The scullet with factory rung off from the breached storage tanks. Debris and corpses floating in the water. In places the water burned, the flames swept down river. His tank started warning of dangerous chemical vapor levels and hundred meters from the banks. Button up, Ayamaru said over the hybrid command channel his communications tech had put together that let him talk to the leaders of the Terran forces as well as his own most highs. Icons splashed for the various units. They went green as they hit the river. The fans howled as the tanks bubbled, but the plumen chambers kept the pressure and the tanks rushed across the river, spraying around them the hellish chemical brew that had been clean blue water a week before. One tank skidded sideways, started to tilt, but the driver got it under control. There was a tangled wreckage of factories on the other side of the river, Twisted hyperalloys, ruptured tanks, partially collapsed buildings, destroyed vehicles. A ship was half sunk into the river and tilted at an angle. The keel sunk to the bedrock of the riverbed. The tanks of the great herd swept around them, slamming into the wreckage, letting their battle screens slam aside the debris as they streamed through the destroyed industrial section. The D tanks, all loaded with new munitions led by Yamaru, cleared the industrial section. Ayamaru could see the sides of the massive mining machines, the sides open to disgorge more attendant vehicles that had been built in their internal manufacturing spaces. Open fire! Ayamaru yelled. Shot ready! His gunner yelled. Shot out! Ayamaru bellowed and stomped on the fire petal. Colonel Dremsel saw his IFF update, saw the icons of the great herd tanks appear streaming out of the wreckage of the industrial section by the river, and gave a smile that was more teeth and snarl than anything normally recognizable as a smile. I got even more toothier when old Ironfeather's voice came over the comlink. Buttoned up, catching air, the SAR officer said. Dremsel could see the dropships clawing for the sky, the one left behind bending in the middle, the forward section separating into separate pieces. The IFF changed from CSFNV Glorious Fat Duck to Warrant Officer Glorious Fat Duck, with the icon for Heavy Warmack. Guns free! Dremsel yelled over the brigade channel. The massive main guns of the heavy main battle tanks roared, and the precursor machines found their assault shattered as the guns that had been silent for nearly 20 minutes opened up again. No fancy munitions, nothing mass reactive or clever tricks. Straight, densely collapsed, discarded Sabot war shots. Precursor mining machines that took even a glancing shot shattered. Armor and mechanical pieces flying through the air. More than a few of the APDSFDSDC rounds punched straight through the first one and hit continued wreaking havoc. Wurrat blew through three precursor machines, hit a chunk of battle steel, and started tumbling. It slammed into a heavy ore processor sideways, still moving at an appreciable speeds, and caved it entire side in, the opposite hull exploding away from the transferred kinetic force. 
The machines in the back were turning, trying to face the oncoming Great Herd tanks, which were breaking into two prongs, sweeping towards Dremsel and the beleaguered 3rd Brigade. 14th Regiment tanks with one, the others trying to get behind the massive machines. That's right, you bastards! Show me your sights, Dremsel snarled. He kept an eye on the bar in the upper right of his vision that was slowly climbing towards the line. The bar was the elevation and distance of the dropships. The line was the minimum safe distance for him to go guns-free on the heavier munitions. He frowned when he saw that the great herd units were hitting spaced shots, not going rapid fire. The rounds weren't apparently doing anything but leaving what looked like ice in the sides of the vehicles. He brought up the magnification and squinted. It looked like someone had peppered the massive machine with snowballs. Target the great herd impact points, he said over the comlink. His own gunner adjusted his aim and point and fired. The round, just a pointed bar of densely collapsed tungsten steel with narrow fins, hit the armor that reacted to heat and pressure by tightening the molecular bonds. The armor that had been hit by nitrogen or hydrogen or helium depending on which tank had fired it. The armor exploded off the vehicle, and the heavy rod got through the armor into the interior spaces. The armor on the other side was tough enough that the heavy rod couldn't escape. It did what fragments of metal had always done when they got inside an armored vehicle. It bounced, shredding everything in its path. The deep crawlers shuddered as more and more rounds hit the frozen spots, their nearly impenetrable armor brittle and frozen, the rounds penetrating inside and bouncing around. Thunder punch! Scatter to the east! Trucker suddenly yelled out over the comlink. Sergeant Eston didn't wait for confirmation, just engaged the tracks so the big tank rotated in place, shooting forward as soon as he was clear of the tank's front and back. The rest of the brigade followed suit their battle screens cycling up and going to independent algorithms. A armor U watched the Terran tanks suddenly break rank on their siege wall and race towards the enemy machines, quickly warbling into a serrated battle line. The ground beneath them suddenly bulged, the ground cracking as a massive section of buried makeshift shelter was suddenly thrust upward. A armor U could feel the ground shaking almost two miles away. The ground suddenly pulled back in, a hole getting larger and larger. Dust and dirt bloomed up from the hole as the vibrations increased. Buxton stared, crouching down behind the copula of the tank, down on one knee, as something massive clawed its way out of the hole. What came out first, Buxton at first thought was the edge of a massive circular blade. And he realized that the teeth were earth-scooping buckets bigger than the tank that he was riding on as the blade kept raising and rising. Four more blades broke free, towering rock and debris into the air as the massive wheels spun. Out of the hole came a monstrous mining machine, 300 meters tall, a kilometer long, and 200 meters wide, on over two dozen massive treads. It was at that angle for a moment, dirt sliding into the hole underneath it. Vuxton saw what looked like a small robot or something caught in the massive gears of the wheels. Sparks shot out as it was sucked into the gears. 
It tilted and slammed into the ground, the earth's shocks making the tank Buxton was on shudder. The displaced air swept over him, carrying debris. Heavy battle screens flickered to life, and the machine gave a roar. Kill that fecking thing! A armoru bellowed out over the command channel. End of chapter. Chapter 359. The huge machine gave a massive roar as it rotated to face the fleeing tanks of the 14th Regiment, 3rd Brigade. Two tanks were brushed by the battle screen the Goliath brought up. One of them, lurching forward, pouring smoke as its own battle screens collapsed, and the thick battle steel armor was vaporized from the war steel hull. The other exploded. Third Brigade Thunderpunch drove straight into the flanks of the massive mining borers that were turning to head towards the Great Herd. Their heavy main guns opening fire even as the vertical launch system tubes opened up and their tanks fired rockets back along the line of retreat. The battle screens of the Leviathan didn't even flicker as the missiles detonated on the battle screen. Buxton saw Casey standing up, shading his one eye, squinting as he looked at something in the Leviathan's direction. R-71, what is that thing? Buxton asked, reaching down to pat the hilt of his cutting bar to reassure himself that it was there. Deep level excavator, 471 answered. Mining gear, not war gear. I think it's whatever it wants to be, Buxton said, wishing that he could wipe his mouth. As it was sweat running down the back of his neck and along the minutes of hustling ammunition to the tanks. A armorer fired the last of the snowball rounds, yelling, SHOT OUT! as he did so. His gunner mashed the button with one hoof and the autoloader whined as he pulled the plasma round out of the ammunition bay in the belly of the tank. All great herd units, follow me. We will get behind the monstrosity and show it our strength. Hey, Amaru commanded, making sure to sound more confident than he felt. Load war shot, full power. But most I, there could be civilians that could be... One of his commanders protested. A armoru noted his self-same commander had just driven his tank over a neo-sapien civilian protesters a mere 60 years prior while helping put down mass civil unrest on a planet in the inner system. The irony was not lost in A. Armuru. Get in there and fight, damn you! A. Armuru roared, doing his best to imitate the human generals. As you command, the commander said softly, switching off. Eighth Most High should Uderu clenched his jaws and the two was a cut that he jammed against the back teeth and ordered up the plasma rounds himself. I will fire the gun, he told his gunner. As Most High, it is my responsibility, he said. Prepare to attack. This crew nodded, turning their attention to their own tasks as Uderu kicked the cover off the firing button and lowered the gunner's scope in front of his eyes. The machine leapt into view as Shu'udaru swallowed thickly. The machine was massive, cables as thick as ground cars, girders as thick as houses, tracks wider than his own tank. It slowly ground forward, crushing anything in its way to a thin grey powder. 144th dismount, Captain Starpen ordered, dropping off the back of the tank and slowly to a jog. The massive Nana Forges had buttoned up plunging into the river and used the thick liquid to do rapid cooldown. They had managed to claw their way up the bank and were digging into the wreckage of the city's industrial section. 
She watched the rest of the 15th sustainment drop off the tanks, running, then slowly to a walk, then stopping. Except Sergeant First Class Casey, who was still standing at the back of one of the Lanarktalang tanks. Casey, get off of there, she snapped. Ma'am, I see something. Permission to investigate, the man requested. What do you see, Casey? Captain Starpoint knew Casey had been in the service longer than most equipment, including Space Force vessels, and knew the man's instincts were razor sharp. Not sure, maybe I'm wrong, but I think I see something, he said. He reached back into his loading frame and grabbed his weapon. Permission to check it out. Starpoint thought for a moment. Think too long, you're wrong, wrote it up in her mind. Her instructor at East Point Military Academy. Just don't get killed. That's an order, she said. Roger, ma'am. Casey out. The Terran said he jumped off the side of the tank as it turned to run along the length of the kilometer-long machine, going down to one knee as it shading his eyes. Buxton saw the human action and tabbed his comma. Ma'am, one of the humans is on to something, he said. Can't tell what, though. Which human? The company commander asked. The one-eyed one, the big one who always wears the loading frame, Buxton said. Buxton realized he was suddenly drawing a blank on the big human's name, despite having interacted with him repeatedly. He looked at the human and blinked, and noticed that the human had suddenly stopped broadcasting his ID. Castile, or something like that. Sergeant First Class Casey, the captain said. Take second platoon and follow him. Be careful, and don't get killed. That's an order. Yes, ma'am. Buxton said. He switched channels, picking up Lieutenant Plano. Lieutenant, get your men. Follow me. Inspiration struck him. IFF off. Laser comma only. Buxton jumped off the side of the tank, feeling his knee twinge as he landed, holding the stubber on one hand, slowing down with the run to a crouch behind the piece of rubble. The men of 2nd Platoon ran up, taking cover. Lieutenant Plano, a fellow Talcon, and Sergeant First cast a docks, a Terran knelt down near him. What are we doing, sir? Plano asked. Casey's on to something, Buxton said. He pointed out the Terran, who was moving in a weird exaggeration motions of someone in heavy power armor. Is he wearing just a loading frame? Plano asked. Looks like it, sir, Adok said, bringing up his armor's magnification. Although, what the hell he's doing with the Pontiac, I don't know. I didn't even know those were still in service. Pontiac? Plano asked. Old styled minigun, Buxton said. Saw them used on second Talcon, heavy firepower. And we're following him, aren't we? Ado said, bringing up his magnification to normal. Looks like he's heading towards the big culvert. We're on him, Buxton said. He looked at Plano. Bring the men in by squad, keep your intervals. I don't want a lucky shot taking out an entire squad. Laser comma only. Plano nodded, starting to sweat. The last thing he wanted to do was screw up in front of Buxton, who was more or less a living legend amongst the Talcon. Buxton looked over at the chunk of ferrocrete that they were hiding behind that had been a solid floor in a skyscraper only a few days ago. What are you doing? He wondered, watching the human. A armorer O had risen out of his tank, grabbing the firing handles of his quad barrel. He was running it in short, sharp bursts, ignoring the falling ammo counter. Part of him wished that he was like the Terrans and could just ignore ammo usage, confident in the knowledge that after a few minutes they'd all be back. But now was not the time to be stingy. 
The plasma packets detonated on the battle screen, and his gunner followed up with a direct hit from the main gun. The battle screen didn't even flicker. It's gonna have some weaknesses, a armorer snarled as his tank brushed a massive chunk of ferrocrete and showered sparks. If we don't figure it out, it's gonna just gobble up the Terran tanks like a Shevashan on a pearl of shrimp. Dremsel overrode the munition type, ordered the nanoforge to wet print up a round that he wanted, locked out his gunner and lifted his foot, unconsciously holding his breath. Less than five seconds later, the round was loaded up into the gun. Almost. The tank kept moving, running down the length of the borer, less than half a mile between the two vehicles' battle screeds. The tank ground and ferrocrete and durasteel rubble under its treads, but still rocking slightly like a small boat in the middle of a lake. Dremsel put the gunner's sight on the overlay over what he was seeing. The borer opened its hatch and robots started dropping out, firing wildly at the tanks of the HHC as they fired back, their rounds impacting to little use on the thick armor of the borer. No! He stomped the firing lever, grinding his teeth, a habit he had since childhood. The massive cannon roaring as it fired the heavy munition. The battle screen on the precursor borer had flickered, reformed, and left a gap between the two steel girders. The shot whipped through the opening, crossed two meters between the borer and the battle screen, then flew through the open hatch that several mining robots had just exited from. The round exploded inside the fabrication bay, the antimatter HE detonating. Contrary to pure lab math, the H3 antimatter round, the fastest the nanoforge could whip print safely, didn't explode on a one-to-one basis. But it was still a hellish explosion as 100 grams of antimatter went off when the round hit the magnetic suspension bottle failed. The borer was designed to handle heat and pressure from the outside of the inside. It managed to hold together for less than a second, but it was long enough to channel the blast towards the rear of the borer. A 1.25 megaton blast gutted the borer, the grinding gears in front exploding outwards, the tracks blowing off, and the energy boiling out of every opening in the borer. A armorer let off the trigger of his plasma gun, keeping his thumbs on the barrel switch, letting the barrels cool as it spun. He couldn't see any way to get through the thick battle screens that were scouring the dirt and destroying anything that wasn't thick as Veracrete Street. He snarled as the massive machine glaring at it, willing it to expose a weakness to him so that he could take its mechanical life. Buxton saw Casey take a duck into a culvert and hustled up, jumping down into the Veracrete trench drain, splashing through water. He heard his men follow, heard someone stumble and curse. Casey had torn away an endosteel grate from the mouth of a pipe, tossing it to the side, and was moving into the ditch himself. Sergeant, what's the plan? Buxton asked, hurrying up to catch up. Ha! Didn't see ya, Casey said, turning slightly. Least I don't have to radio back if it pans out. What pans out? Buxton asked, following Casey through the huge ferrocrete pipe. The water was knee-deep, swirling darkly, shimmering with a thin layer of petroleum. That thing's battle screen don't react to ferrocrete, Casey said. He looked out of the far opening where the burnt-out cars were still parked neatly. At least, I don't think so. And what are you going to do by your lonesome? Buxton asked, his officer mouth speaking before his brain could catch up. 
He winced slightly. Well, sir, I figured I should get a good look at it. Maybe ID some stress points for close air support run, or even manage to get the frequency reading on the battle screens from the inside. Since, if I'm right, that thing is running dual screens. Casey said, leaning down in the muck. There is no way that it has a point defense, Apris systems, or even too many robot buddies. That's a gnaw, not a combat vehicle. It's got heavy battle screens to keep high-energy particle sleet out, working on unshielded moons. The rest of second platoon stopped in the water, waiting silently. Buxton checked the marker. Forty-five total. Platoon leader, platoon sergeant, two section sergeants, and five squads of eight men. He ran the numbers in his head. One squad with a portable 80mm mortar, four squads with one heavy altar cannon, two men per squad with the rocket launchers. Each squad led by a Terran. More firepower than he was used to leading. What happens if you're wrong? Buxton asked, tabbing up a piece of stim gum. Poof! 471 offered helpfully. The battle screen tears us apart, Casey confirmed. Buxton nodded. That thing will eat anything that can't go out from in front of it, Casey said. The tanks can't get through the battle screens. Maybe a bolo could, but it would be one hell of a fight. I thought the bolo could take on a starship, Bono said. That thing's as big as a starship and designed for heavy mining, Casey said. The water started shivering weirdly, then began to steam. Here it comes, Casey said softly. Get ready, men, Buxton said over the command channel. Hey, Abaru, Ramsall, do you two read? Trucker's voice shot out with static. Sir... Remsel snapped, shredding a handful of machines with his squat barrel. I am here, Ayamru said. You've got movement, a debris cloud, heading your way from the Jotun a couple miles away, Trucker said. Too much metal in the debris cloud. I think the Jotun got some new tricks. You're about to get hit in force and hit hard. Roger, Remsel said. He kicked the button and the seat whined and dropped down, the hatch closing over his head. He switched to the brigade net. Get ready, we're about to get sandwiched, and not in a fun way. He warned his men, but in an up thunder punch. The primary machine, a robotic machine that usually ripped away parts of mountains, that shattered medium-sized asteroids, saw the lead tank clatter across the street. It computed the distance, the attenuation from the debris in the air, and fired its main massive excavation cannon. Turning in the street to face the oncoming cloud, Visible down the industrial boulevard, HHC-2-8 managed to get its hatch closed, bringing the main gun around towards the dust cloud approaching when the beam launched out. It struck the battle screen and detonated. A 2.25 megaton blast washed over the entire brigade. The fireball itself was 1.75 kilometers in radius. The 20 psi overpressure blast wave, powerful enough to crack and collapse ferrocrete, washing out three kilometers, slamming over the entire Thunder Punch Brigade, crashing into the borers around the flanks, damaging buildings collapsed and fires erupted six kilometers away. The fireball climbed up into the sky. Historically, it wouldn't have been a disaster. Most of the tanks were hit in the flank, rather than taking it head-on with their barrels pointing backwards, some of the guns facing forward. For the precursor that fired the round, it computed a 74.524% chance that the majority of the Feral's tanks would be destroyed. 
the ghosts of a billion mantids howled with laughter. They knew that the humans had built tanks that could withstand being inside a fireball of a megaton-level blast before they even developed the faster-than-light drive. Before they'd even developed battle screens. When they'd still used refined petroleum products to fuel their tanks. Battle screens howled as they fought the detonation. Sparks flew as the radiation washed over the tanks, and the tanks heaved as the ground beneath them shook from the atomic blast. The precursor machine felt the equivalent of smugness. Yes, the borers had been flipped onto the sides, but the Ferrell's vehicles had no chance of withstanding a point-blank atomic detonation from the strength just delivered by a... Uh, GUNS FREE! Gremsel yelled out. Buxton saw the atomic, atomic, atomic flash in his visor and nervously glanced up at the top of the pipe only a few meters above his head. HHC-2-5 fired back, the battle screen cleanly visible, still inside the fireball. The return shot was only 12.5 kilotons. Where the precursor shot had been omnidirectional and return shot was squeezed, focused down to deliver the majority of the released energy to a spot less than a hand width wide. The vehicle's battle screens collapsed. HHC-2-11 fired. The vehicle had armored measures in the tons of meters. 2-11 blew a hole half the distance of 20 meters wide and cracked the armor for nearly 50 meters around the impact point. The vehicle responded by ordering the ancillary vehicles into combat. Vehicles that had been insulted that the Jotun had ordered it to shepherd and guide. It was still reeling from the first two shots, barely able to restore its battle screen when more hits started coming in. The last three borers never even had a chance to right themselves when Dremsel's tanks and Charlie Company, 4th Battalion, gutted them, firing antimatter penetrators into their exposed bellies. It's a different fight now, isn't it, jerks? Dremsel yelled out as he kicked the lever to lift himself back out of his tank. There was no way he was running from an atma smasher and hiding inside a hull. He loved the tang of radiation on his dental work during a fight. A Arboru was aware he was just staring. His driver had cut the power to the forward fan so that he could scrape the edge of the fan against the dirt to stop forward movement. Even when the blast had pushed his tank ten feet back and almost overloaded the battle screen, the mushroom cloud from the initial blast was still climbing when A Arboru saw atomic, atomic, atomic appear in his vision. He barely had gotten inside the tank when the tank of the 14th Regiment, 3rd Brigade, started firing back. Hey, Arboru, you've got incoming buzz bombs, Trucker's voice cut into the comlink. Get your guts off the ground and get mobile. The Terran's voice was tight in stress. CAS is 15 mics out. You gotta fight. Up the tanks, hey, Arboru yelled over the command channel, and the tanks of the Great Herd lifted back up onto the air cushions. Point the fans! He slapped the switch, pulling all external guns but the main gun from local control and into the computer-controlled network to provide point defense against incoming artillery, missiles, and mortars. Each driver boosted the tank, sliding forward on the air cushion. Less than ten seconds later, his tank cut loose, weaving a deadly web of light with point defense. The buzz bombs were grey-colored, pebble-looking, to blend in with the ground. They were running hard on anti-grav systems with a missile reactionless drive, 
less than five meters off the ground. They started exploding, the point defense of the tanks raking the heavy anti-armored vehicle bombs out of the sky. But there was still more. Barton up! Heard! Incoming rocket! Came Captain Starpun's voice over the channel. A armorer ooze wiser warned him. Atomic! 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 The missile came from behind, barely skimming over the top of the Great Hertz tanks. It passed the lead buzz bomb at half a mile from the lead tank, went another couple hundred meters. The war boy aboard the guidance system squeaked with delight and exploded. The 55 kiloton blast shredded the buzz bombs, half of them exploding with sympathetic detonations, the rest of them smashed by the shockwave. Sparks shot off a Amaru's communications console that was radiation wave rolled over his tanks, making his battle screens sparkle. Vuxton clenched his teeth as cars stumbled and tumbled by, some of them on fire, some of them torn into pieces. Here it comes, Casey breathed. The battle screens of the massive ore extractor slid over the culvert. End of chapter. Chapter 360 Memoir During the waning days of the Unified Council, he was tasked with contributing to the defense of a small world. In the years gone by, I have largely forgotten the name of the council once labeled it with. I know it as Dalmara, as the natives renamed it. History doubtfully knows little in regards to that battle, a protracted campaign that lasted to me forever that ranged across the entire mega continent i share with you the academic text the siege of dalmara was one extensive battle during the second precursor wave during the great collapse terran and unified military council forces banded together in the face of overwhelming odds to defend the civilian population of 6.4 billion at the end of the fighting only 2.9 billion remained in that declared victory, where the Unified Military Council and the Terran Space Force military units authorized the use of atomic weaponry in the atmosphere, in reckless disregard for civilian life. This is not the first nor the last time the Terran Confederacy used atomic weaponry in such a way as to put civilians in danger. The native species of Dalmara were left with a planet that had suffered massive ecological damage, as well as a near-total collapse of all industrial and agricultural. That is it. That is the all that appears in the textbooks. Those words, those easy for academics to write, were not so easy when I was there. I was but a lowly tank gunner, 15th class, part of the great herd of a Amaru, which was later renamed the Atomic Hooves. It was my first military deployment, and I had arrived with the tanks at a fairly inexperienced gunner. I gained my experience on the killing fields of Damara. When we landed, it was to reinforce the system Great Most High, who was concerned by the fact that the Terran Confederate Space Navy was operating nearby, establishing what was obviously a forward operating base to keep up operational tempo in the Unified Council territory. We were barely there long enough for the tanks to be offloaded and readied for combat when the precursors attacked. I remember those days vividly. Some nights too vividly. I can remember the rich smell of dropped paddies when the internal waste system of the tank broke down on the second day, forcing us 
to scoop them out with chunks of plants and throw them from the taches during our infrequent breaks. The smell of plasma round propellant. How it clung to my hide, to my armor, to the inside of my sinus cavity. The sweat, the urine, the flat taste of recycled water. The fear. The precursors brushed aside the combined space fleets of the unified executor, unified corporate, and unified military forces like so much green before a broom. They landed in force, intending to strip everything from the planet to fuel their unliving war machine. Orbital strikes bloomed new suns on the surface of the planet, smashing down sky rakers like an angry child smashing a toy. Barely two-thirds of the population reached the survival shelters. The rest were on their own. Out of General Ayamaru's 20,000 tanks, less than half of us remained within days. Half of the civilian population was dead with my comrades. It was night when we heard the terrible news. Terran Confederate Space Force was coming. They announced themselves with heavy battle incoming. And I remember feeling despair. My tank was damaged from fighting the precursors. Most of the infantry was dead. And our air support had been swept from the sky like so many birds. The bellow of heavy metal is here sounded like a death knell to the world. Instead of attacking us, the lemurs attacked the precursors, acting as if the Lanaklan war machine was not even present. No vessel that did not attack them was attacked. Those foolish enough to attack were wiped from the skies. Then we saw it. It looked like stars falling, drop cradles carrying tanks, drop pods full of infantry, aerospace fighters sweeping into the atmosphere to bring the fight to the precursors. I was present when the great General Aamaru received notification that the Terran tank commander, General Trucker, wished to speak with him. I escorted the general, who was then known as Great Grand Armor Most High. It was then I saw my first Terran. More machine than Lima, glowing red eyes, large in stature and bulk, cybernetics and adaptive camouflage. I have no words to describe the Lima commander. He was authority and competence made manifest. I envied his men. Our tanks were battered. Damaged, beaten open. His were too, but it seemed almost as if it was a natural order of the universe that the Lima's tanks would be damaged. I watched as General A. Amaru spoke to the Lima, shocked at how formal the Lima's were. I would learn in the following weeks that formality was a thin veneer of a savagery and fearsomeness in combat. Excerpt from We Were the Lanark Land of the Atomic Hooves. A memoir. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.